Unexplained Deaths and Mysteries with Deborah Davis. Welcome back, everybody. So here we have the second part of our talk about the Wilmslow murders. Um, wow, it's just such an interesting case. And I think we've just, we just have got so much more to say about this. So yeah, let's crack on with it, guys. David, could you pick up the reins a few years later then, the next crime scene? So I guess, you know, I found the first, the Ainsworth case quite compelling. And we all did on 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 the Insight team, but then when you combine it with the second, I think in a lot of ways it strengthens, you know, the the idea that the first could have been a double murder. There's real similarities, I think. So second case that was Donald Ward and Oriel Ward. So they were very similar. Very they were they were a middle class family like the Ainsworths, but I'd say even more so. You know, this family really had a bit of wealth. You know, they had an estate worth about £800,000 in today's money. They had a big detached dormer bungalow in Wilmslow, which, as Deborah knows, aren't cheap. <laughs> and, and they weren't cheap in, in, in 1999 either, which came with, you know, I think about an acre of land. And it was in a kind of a little cul-de-sac there was only three houses on the cul-de-sac, weirdly isolated street, as in it is surrounded by residential streets, but it's kind of in a pocket that tucks into the, the middle. So so Donald and, and, and Oriel, both retired grandchildren, spent a lot of time with the grandkids, uh, really involved in their lives. You know, they went to watch, you know, classical music donald was maybe a touch pretentious in kind of you know he like he liked the finer things in life you know to go on tours of the continent and um he'd drive and um so they were enjoying their lives and um until one week uh well a couple of a few days before they were sorting out their the house they had the entire driveway rebuilt so, you know, they spent thousands of pounds kind of upgrading their driveway. Um, they just arranged to see uh, um, uh, Michael, one of their sons and family for Christmas, and they'd arranged babysitting. It had just been Oriel's birthday, uh, so they all went out for a family meal. So it was just life as usual, really, until one week, basically, it was a... Tuesday, early hours of Tuesday morning, when basically there was there was no more communication from, with the outside world from the ward households. They stopped answering the phones. They stopped coming to the door when the door was knocked. They stopped being seen in the cul-de-sac. It wasn't till later that week when kind of family members were kind of starting to get concerned, weren't answering the phone. Oriel uh, hadn't turned up for a hairdresser's appointment. Uh, Donald's had failed to take his car in for its annual service. Um, and one of their family basically arranged for somebody to knock on the door, um, which they did. It was somebody who lived in Wilmslow and uh, a member of the extended family. And 
There was no answer, so he went round to a guy called Roger Bugler's house, who lived two doors up, and Roger had a key to the house. Roger was really good friends with Donald. They were very close, both educated men, professionals. Roger was a retired engineer. Donald was a retired chemist. And the two, two of them went, went to the house. Uh, Roger went to open up the door with a key, but found that actually the kitchen door was open. So pushed the way in and saw that the, the table was laid for breakfast, but nothing had been eaten. The newspapers were piled on top of each other at the door and looked around downstairs, nothing there, went upstairs and then found the most horrific scene. Oriel is on the right-hand side of the bed like B was. Um, Donald is on the left-hand side of the bed like Howard. They're in the night clothes. And Oriel is lying in a very similar position to how B was. She's got a night gown hitched up to expose her private parts and she's got a pillow that's been placed over her face in exactly the same way there was a pillow placed over B's face and then they they kind of left the left the house raised the alarm and then we get a big murder investigation which lasted for weeks I think police initially suspected an intruder for the double murder but then changed their minds fairly sharpishly I think I mean, they did. They, it was for quite some time afterwards in this case that they did still suspect it was a murder. There is a lot more material that we got hold of with this investigation just because there's more of it. There's more experts that have been brought in. There's more analysis. You know, they're, they're doing, I think, probably trying to do their best in this case to, to, to solve it as a, as a double murder. The, the the big re- the big flag initially for police was the wounds to Donald's hands, so he had defence wounds on his hands, and he thought that basically somebody could have possibly had a knife, and he was def- holding his hands up to defend himself. That was that was investigated by the police. You know they had roadblocks in Wilmslow, and they were stopping people. Uh, they were asking, "Have you seen anything suspicious? Anyone running around the streets? You know with 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 blood on them." They were looking for discarded bloody clothes. The family then came out with a statement saying, you know, they were a loving couple, really involved, or really shocked by it. The Ward's sons never believed that Donald was capable. They just didn't believe he could have done it for a variety of reasons. One of the big ones that they think was that Donald was a chemist. They just don't see a way in which he would have committed that murder in that way. Yeah, surely as a chemist, his knowledge of medication, pills and potions would have overridden the urge to smash his wife's head in with a, with a ceramic hot water bottle and stab her with the shards. You know, surely a, a, you know, a man of that background would have known, if he wanted to dispose of his wife, how to do it in a much gentler way. It's probably not a good way of putting it, but a less violent way. And then also the way he took his own life, you know, that, that, that was an interesting one. It was, they really, you know, they did, a, would say, a, a pretty kind of, they had a good go at it. In the end, where, what, what I was told by somebody who worked on the Ward's case, a detective, who was a kind of middle-ranking detective, um, wasn't the SIO, wasn't kind of uh, at the bottom. He was kind of in the middle. That they told me that 
he said in summary he was fairly happy with it, but a lot was drawn from the negative um, conclusions that the fact that they didn't find any evidence of third party, although there was a hair that they 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 never got to the bottom of. There was a, a blonde tinted hair basically found in the house that they could never work out, and they did a lot of work to try and find family, friends, anybody who you know uh, who had you know hair like that. Um, um, that they found suspicious, but well, did they find it suspicious? They didn't bottom that out. But what he told me was where they drew the line. There was pressure. There was budget pressures. You know, there was a lot of resource going into it and that line had to be drawn somewhere. And where they drew that line, it was felt on the balance. It was a murder-suicide. But when you ask, was the Ainsworths taken into the investigation fully and examined? The answer is, it was always, they knew about it, but they regarded it as a cut and dry murder-suicide. They never, ever considered that it could be a same offender or anything like that. It just wasn't really considered in that way. It was thought about more in terms of how can we explain why Donald did what he did? You know, could he have could he have seen in the news about this murder suicide round the corner three years ago? And um, and and he's tried to copy it in some way. Yeah. So that's the way they were thinking about it. They were so you know, it was it's an interesting case, but it's it's it is different to the first one. And there was differences of opinion in my kind of investigation team of whether it was murder-suicide or double murder. I could talk to you a bit about that if you want. I'm keen just to bring Debbie in just first because she was, I think, uh, anxious to uh, intervene there. Donald had, you know, spent thousands, well, they'd both spent thousands on having the drive done and they'd made arrangements for the future, as in for Christmas and et cetera, et cetera. Why, why would he think, oh... Do you know what? That happened three years ago with the Ainsworths. I think I might, you know, do the same and um, leave my leave my wife in the same way, you know, with a nightie hitched up to her hips and a pillow over her face. I think if you look at the psychology of the nightie up to the hips and the pillow over the face, that probably tells a lot more about what's really happened to both couples, to be honest. Because I think there's... You know, there are clues in that kind of behaviour, you know, of, of setting a scene like that, which seems very odd for two separate husbands to have done that to their wives. I think I think that's an understatement there, Debbie, and, and, and I, I, I agree with your analysis there. Just uh, to, to sort of put the context of these, uh, of these deaths uh, together, uh, three years elapsed from the Ainsworth uh, deaths. Um, in terms of the crime scenes, David, how far away were they apart? They were both in Cheshire, but in terms of as, as the crow, crow flies or, or, you know, driving. So you've got Wilmslow kind of town centre and they, they were the, the other side from each other in the town centre. I'd, I'd say a 10 minute walk, I'd say probably roughly. And this is something that I've always hoped that somebody comes to me with or whatever. And, and I know another journalist who did some research into this, but 
when I came to researching the book, I only ever found one article about the Ainsworth's case because it wasn't well publicised. It was nothing like the Wards was a national huge story. The, the Ainsworth's wasn't because it was it was it did just the investigation didn't last very long. So there was one pa- story in the local paper that I ever found on it, and the the detail is so scant. And one thing that the police said in the Ward's case was, well, you know, there was things in the crime scene that could have been Donald. It was a copycat. For example, the door of the house was left op- open, same as the Ainsworths. Um, and they were trying to figure out why has he done that? And the reason the SAO came up with was, well, we might have heard about this case. I cannot find a single reference to any 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 media article that that goes into that level of detail. I struggle to find it. I found more details about the Ainsworth case from tw- 2019, 2020, 21 in, in the journalistic reports and newspapers than I did back in 96. I think I found one, maybe two references to it. No description, no detail. It was just, you know, your, your, your newspaper headline, couple killed in, murder-suicide. So it may have been, I think Donald, I mean, as you know, Deborah Wilmslow, it's, it's a, it's a it's class as a town, but I always describe it as a village. It's like it a villagey like feel, a village. isn't it? Everybody yeah. knows everybody, yeah. isn't it? And and yeah, I think Donald maybe walking around, talk to people, might have probably heard about Howard, but the level of detail I just don't think was public knowledge. The the mimicking of the earlier crime, that synopsis could only have any plausibility if Donald had seen the crime scene photographs and and they were never published. And, and, and you say, Frankie, from your own um, investigation online, there, there is not that much detailed information on there. So, you, you know, it, 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 it's a spurious thing to say. And I, I think, again, a lazy uh, type of investigation. But what I'm struggling with is if you make a decision to, you know, kill your partner and then kill yourself, why would you then think, I'll tell you what, I'll mimic a, a horrific slaying like someone out of Jack the Ripper. I don't get that. Uh, out of interest, David, uh, were, were, any, were any of the investigation team on the Donald and Oriel uh, deaths, uh, were they the same or, or similar from, from the first murder? Because it obviously on the same police area. There was a bit of crossover but what you got with the the Ainsworth case was dealt with by local CID in, in, in Wilmslow. So that went to them because there was a detective inspector there at the time in Wilmslow who had a team and it was deemed he was enough of a, a level of seniority to deal with that, that crime. The, the wards one was because it was initially treated completely differently as a double murder a potential psychopath basically on the loose. They felt like it shouldn't go to Wilms, though it went to Macclesfield Police Station instead, which is was like the divisional headquarters. But you did get crossover some b- between detectives, just just people who might have started the career in Wilmslow and then graduated to, to work in Macclesfield. But in terms of the investigations themselves. I think there was one or two people who might have worked on both at a very junior level, uh, but certainly not senior. Definitely not senior. So, so, so with this crossover, David, in the same way we're making parallels between two crime scenes, that discussion must have gone on even at the lower levels 
of, of, of the hierarchy. What explanation did the police give to you that they weren't connecting both? Well, I mean, at the, t- at the actual time in 1999, C- Christine Hurst once again was the same coroner's officer. You know, she, she, she was the sa- she who was the coroner's officer for the Ainsworths. And she found out about it first by going to Macclesfield Hospital Mortuary, opening up the, the fridge drawers and seeing Oriel lying in one of the trays. And she said to the, the mortuary technician, Dave Bourne, what on earth is this? Uh, and he says, it's a murder-suicide. She's like, right, where? In Wilmslow. And she's like, my God, this is exactly the same. The injuries and the damage and the level of violence it is exactly the same as, as what I saw three years ago. So she did flag it to some of the detectives in 1999 to a, a SOCO, a senior crimes officer at the time. She showed, actually, because she kept the Ainsworth's file in her office and she took out the file from her office and took out the new file on the wards and, and, and she had all the crime scene photographs and she showed uh, one of the scenes of crimes officers on the wards case and said, look at this, this is, this is weirdly similar, isn't it? And the soccer agreed and said, yeah, uh, my God, I knew nothing about this. But it was clearly dismissed because there is no mention really of, of the Ainsworth case in the SIO's report. And I know that because I've seen it and I've read it. The only mention he gives, he, he doesn't name the Ainsworth by name, but he, do, he does say he, he wonders if Donald was influenced by a murder-suicide which happened in the area 18 months before. But he even got, actually, that that's wrong. It wasn't 18 months before. It was three years before. And it probably, as we've discussed, wasn't the murder-suicide. So it does make me wonder if they started from ground zero, taking both cases into account, if the outcome would have been different. But the investigation started to turn. There was a point where it started to turn. And by the way, they did actually have, and this will interest Ian in particular, I think, they actually brought in two outside experts from the what was then called the National Crime Faculty, the NCF. They brought in a criminal profiler, expert kind of criminologist, and a, and a, and a senior detective to get a kind of basically a, a second opinion, if you like. And I've read their report and they raise some real questions, really challenging points, you know, for the murder-suicide conclusion. Um, the biggest ones they point out are the they're not happy with the blood pattern staining on Donald's face. They basically say that that's not explained by the conclusion Donald took his life because, you, you know, what they determine is, he basically, to believe that he committed suicide, he would have had to have stabbed himself in the groin several times, cut his wrist, cut his throat, and stabbed himself in the heart. Um, so you, that's the chain that you have to kind of buy into. And what they, they believed was that um, cut, when he cut his jugular vein, he would have been face down and bled out into the pillow. And that's what caused the stain on his face. But then when they go into the crime scene, he's found, he's not face down in the pillow, he's facing upwards with a, with a knife in his heart. 
And that's something they do point out. They say, well, <laughs> how is that how how has that happened? So either the pillow's been moved or he's been moved, but either way, one of those things have to have happened. So that's that's something that they point out. Another thing they do query, which Frankie will probably, you know, um have good insight into is is the way he died, which I just described. They did question is it possible? Um, I've heard, I've heard experts kind of talking each way on this. Some say yes, some say unlikely, but you know, possible. Some say no. <laughs> it's just a, it's kind of a mixed bag. But what what they do, most of them agree on is it is a really bizarre way to take your own life. So that's something that they raise. But then the investigation begins to turn, and the point it begins to turn is when the forensic work comes back in. And there's one, there's, there's, there's something in it which, you know, and my book does not leave anything out, and that's what I really wanted to make sure that I'm not kind of trying to steer the reader in any way. It's all laid out for the reader to make their own mind up. But Donald's blood is found on the handle of the knife drawer. So that is something which the police investigation really kind of started to to look at Donald being the killer, basically. So there was there was a lot of, we had a lot of discussions over this on the Insight team. John, Jonathan Jonathan believes that the Ainsworth was a double murder, but he does question the second one. Me and George felt like George basically went the route of well, what if Donald tried to save Oriel? You know, that could be a possibility that Donald ran down and he tried to get a weapon and he ran back upstairs. Isn't that likely as well? And I felt like there was just, <laughs> the, the, the scenes are so similar that it's like a one in a million, more than that maybe. You know, it's such an utter coincidence that both women had pillows on their faces and and had the night dresses pulled up and... There was no motive, and all those things together, I just felt like, my God, you know, this is this is too strange. David, thank you. Before I bring Frankie in to review some of the operational uh, issues around the crime scene, um, just curious: were the points raised by the um, criminologists answered by the police? No, I don't think they were ever. You know, the two or three questions that they had, which kind of poked holes in the murder-suicide theory weren't answered you know the biggest one of which was the blood the, the the blood stain patterning on on Donald's face there were questions over why did he open the kitchen door leave it open that was kind of answered by the SIO saying oh you know it could have been copycat you know he's copying what Howard did but I'm not sure that bears out really I'm not sure Donald would have known that level of detail about the crime scene and they also they had issue with the way, basically, that that Donald took his life, stabbing himself in the groin. It's probably quite unusual. The wrist, his throat, you know, that cutting your jugular would mean death in seconds, or certainly, you know, death in, in a in a small space of time. Why then inflict the further wound by stabbing yourself in the heart? There's also another point they said, which was there was no hesitation marks found, which 
apparently is quite common with somebody who's trying to gather up the courage to take their lives. You know, you you might have a go, but not fully use the force necessary. Donald didn't have any of that, and I think that's really interesting. That links in. I could I could see Frankie uh, eagerly nodding there when we uh, discussed the David Kelly death. So, so bottom line, David, the, these you know issues were never addressed satisfactorily um, by the police. But consistency in crime scene management by the offender. If we look at the offender for the moment, as discussed in the Ripper murders that we we covered some podcasts away. There is a consistency of the way they go about these crimes and there is an eerily connection between two crime scenes as as evidenced by the senior coroner that looked at those and immediately said, goodness me, you know, there is a connection. It's obvious to everybody there. Quite interesting as well that it seems to be that the police on occasions are quite happy to say, well, yeah, it could happen. Quite rare, but it could happen. And we all go with that. Yet, if Debbie says it was a UFO, she's ridiculed, you know, and, and, and we, we, we have to, as professionals, yep. look at the balance of probabilities, you know, because otherwise you can pull all sorts of rabbits out of hats and say, well, it could have happened, but it's never happened before ever in the history of criminology and, and, and crime. But yeah, it could have happened. So I find that bonkers. But before I hand back to, um, to Frankie, um, some fascinating research I came across at the Institute of Criminal Justice Studies at Portsmouth University that looked at the postal coding of crime. And they looked at where crimes were committed in relation to where the offenders lived. Very often the first crimes, the low-level crimes, the inquisitive crimes such as burglary and, and, and theft, were carried at some distance. But the more major crimes, people believed that it was more likelihood that they could go from A to B locally without raising suspicion. And you tell me there's a 10-minute walk between the two. So, and you're more likely on the stats alone to be killed by somebody you know through friendships or relationships. So this proximity and the, you know, the, the way it mirrors both crime scenes, um, you know, I think categorically says there is, to me, a, a connection. I think it's interesting to look back at the initial crime scene. Uh, David said that the, the coroner, uh, said at the point after the, the pathology had taken place that the injuries were exactly the same or similar. Even before that, the posing of the bodies at uh, the ward crime scene is so similar to the Ainsworth scene, um, body on the right, body on the left, night dressed, uh, lifted up. And also, that the other thing that from the crime scene that gets me, and I'll go back to, to what David said about the knives, is Donald, as we said, was a retired chemist, and we mentioned that would a retired chemist smash a ceramic hot water bottle over his wife's head and then stab her with the shards? Uh, or would he would he try and do something more gentle? He then slashed his own throat, stabbed himself in the chest and stabbed himself in the groin. A man of that education, a chemist, would know that slashing his own jugular would kill him in under a minute. The thing that gets me most of all, though, the thing that gets me most of all is if Donald did snap and had a knife in his hand, why did he smash a ceramic pot over his wife's head when he had a knife that would have done the job quicker, easier and better. The, the wounds he had to his hands, though, I'm not, I'm, I don't know about these. If you stab someone with shards of ceramic pot, you're going to get wounds to your hands. Surely those wounds are going to be different if they are defensive wounds from a knife. Was that ever looked into? Because he, he did smash a ceramic hot water bottle over his wife's head and stabbed her with the shards. That would have caused injuries to his hands. 
uh, and then he allegedly slit his own throat and put a knife into his own chest. I have seen people stab themselves. I've never seen anyone kill themselves or commit suicide by stabbing themselves, I have to say. I've seen people slit their own throats with razor blades. I've, I know of a lady who, who, where I used to work, would regularly embed a butter knife into her body, into her belly. But that wasn't for suicide. These people had severe mental health issues, personal trauma, personal problems. And it would seem that Donald and Oriel didn't have personal issues, mental health problems. It seemed they were a gentle, loving couple. And again, like the Ainsworths, would Donald have done that much damage to a woman he'd lived with and married and loved for decades and and degrade her in that way? I, I don't think so. Frankie, thank you. Let me ask you then from a legal point of view then. The second crime scene then, on the balance of probabilities then, was it a murder-suicide? Not in my opinion. I believe external person, external persons or person could be the same person from the, the first scene, um, murdered both Donald and Oriel Ward. Debbie, same question to you on balance. I think that it was done by the same person and, and that both both couples were both murdered. But I think probably by the same person, judging by how the, the crime scenes have have been staged. The posing is so similar, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Debbie. Uh, David, um, I know that some of your colleagues weren't as uh, impressed with uh, any other explanations but from your point of view you've lived and breathed this um what's your take i I agree i think on the balance um it's either having to kind of i mean there was a point actually when i was writing the book when i was gonna go to and i actually did i went to oxford university and i asked for uh, a senior mathematician with expertise in in probability uh, who could potentially estimate the probability of these two events happening in the in the same town, three years apart, pillow on both women's faces, you know, you know, inputting all the similarities in, because I, I just I just found it extraordinary. But they, they basically, they, to cut long so short, they came back and said, "There's nobody who would be able to do that for me," uh, because I wanted to put. Uh, uh, you know, to put in, this is a one in a billion or whatever it is, but I, it is whatever the odds of it are, astronomical. Um, and also I think uh, for me, there are, there's enough there to, to make it more likely to be a double murder. I think, I think just the way he killed himself, I think the stabbing of the groin, why would he do that? I, I, I do find that hard to believe. Um, I think, I think the blood, on his face, not being explained ever. Um, I'm intrigued by the hair that was found, you know, although that could be just absolutely nothing. But, um, you know, there's always a, uh, and I was told this by uh, Hamish, Hamish Campbell, who was, who was, I've known for quite a few years, but he used to run Scotland Yard's um, homicide, senior homicide command team. And he did the Jill Dando case. He did Gareth Williams a lot of bit. And he, he used to talk, talk to me a lot about like reading in too much to the negatives and, and how negative absence of proof is not proof in itself. That's what he used to tell me. And I think like 
with the Ward case and with the Ainsworths, I think, you know, it's 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 quite a, a wise thing to bear, you know, to have in mind. I I, I felt. Mm. David, thank you. Um, I hate to bring things to a conclusion, but um, I think we're probably steer, steering towards the end of these particular podcasts. Could I ask you, David, what conclusions do you reach in your book? We've come up with our own thoughts. What what conclusions do you reach? So at in the your end book? of a, I do give my view at the end of the book because uh, I think you know the reader will will expect it, um, and. I the book is incredible. Do believe the book is amazing. Oh, thank you. Oh, it is. <laughs> thank you. You can't put it down, um, honestly. Mm. <laughs> well, that's what I hoped it would be—a kind of. Um, I wanted to hook the reader in to keep them engaged with what I'm telling them, um, and the best way to do that, I felt, was to try and make it a narrative with a kind of cliffhanger at the end of every chapter. So that's that's you know that that's the way I felt the reader could be best engaged. But my conclusion was that the Wilmslow killings were done by one person who hasn't been caught, certainly. Yeah, the work of one offender who who hasn't been caught. Thanks, David. Um, for our listeners then, um, how can they rapidly get hold of your book? Can we have the title, you know, where, this, uh, where your book can be purchased? So The Hunt for the Silver Killer is available on, uh, on Amazon. Um in hardback or on Kindle, or you can go into Waterstones and pick it up. You could order it on WH Smith's website uh, or Foils or most good bookshops. You could order it in. Brilliant. Thanks, David. Um, Frankie, can I thank you yet again for your incredible and impressive operational pedigree that you bring to our discussions? And I've, I've written down here that you have actually started a, a cold case review, um, and I passionately believe that this story is not concluded. Um, and I think if we look back to our early discussions, Debbie and I, when we started this journey, um, you know, our intention was keeping mysterious deaths in the public consciousness. And I think this podcast in particular has, has met that objective. And I would be very keen for pressure to be put on the Chief Constable of Cheshire Constabulary by the local MPs to reinvestigate and review this, maybe an outside force, new eyes on it. But I think we've demonstrated in our discussions today that there are, to use your terminology, David, considerable red flags that haven't been addressed. And for the safety of not only people in Cheshire, but public safety, this needs to be looked at again. Debbie, over to you to, to bring things to a conclusion. Well, wow, what's an absolutely thoroughly interesting conversation today. Um, many, many thanks both to Frankie and David for joining us on this podcast. And we would love to have both of you back, you know, on other podcasts that we explore because you've got such a wealth of knowledge, both of you. Um, can I also say for the listeners, we will have the link for David's book in show notes. So you you don't have to search very far to find it. There will be a link there to a primary source to, to pick up the book. Um, I must just say that I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed 
every single bit of reading that book. I am going to go back and read it a second time because I feel as if I'll digest more of the minute detail in doing that. So, yeah, this remains open. Who knows? We may discover more things about this, this case, and revisit it a third time. Who knows? Please get in touch if you have anything that you can add to this conversation. Uh, you'll find us all on social media, I'm sure. So just let us know if there's anything that you, you really think we should know, etc., etc. And thank you for joining us today. And we will be back very soon. Take care, everybody. Goodbye from us. Bye-bye.